0: there'll be two two things I'll talk about. One is about what it is for entities on the World Wide Web to have meaning. That may not seem a very interesting question at first sight, but in some sense I want to try and persuade you it is an interesting question. Um, Our texts that we have in front of us, books, papers, newspapers, have meaning, because we give them meaning. And the World Wide Web as we've originally got it is just simply a set of texts that we can find from anywhere in the world. So... Whatever meaning it has is only meaning because we give it meaning. I want to ask if there's any deeper sense in which the web might, shall we put it this way, could know what was on it, could know what it was about, in the way your television set doesn't know what it's showing. It just shows stuff, doesn't it? Um, Could the web be better than television? Could it know what was on it? The second part, I'll talk about our lives on the web in the sense that soon, if not now, all our life data will be on the web, and how we can control it during life, after death, um, how we can stop, to some degree, people getting at it. We all know this is a problem. The newspapers talk about it all the time. I'll try and come ahead from a slightly different point of view. But I think this more or less says that. I shall talk about something called the semantic web, which is what Tim Berners Lee, the man who gave us the World Wide Web in Geneva, originally wanted. Um, he gave us the World Wide Web, but he wanted something else. And he, It was the semantic web, and I'll try and distinguish that from the web as we now have it. How does it compare? Um, I'll talk about the semantic web that is coming into being, and which is what I believe Berners-Lee wanted, as a sort of giant philosophical experiment. I'll explain what I mean by a giant philosophical experiment. Um, A web that knows what's on it, and in some sense grounds the meaning of what's on it. By ground meaning, I mean something the philosophers have meant for centuries by... Phrases like ground meaning. How do our symbols have meaning at all? You know, it's all very well in the Bible when um, God says the apple is called apple in Hebrew, presumably. Um, But most of life isn't like that. It isn't like holding a a word up to a thing. Um, There's all those words on the web. How do they mean anything? I mean, how how does the web ground its meaning in things outside itself? Because it's a gigantic closed world of symbols. (laughs) Um, I shall come back to the Artificial Companion little chap down the right-hand corner who I talked about last last time and argue that when our life is on the web we're going to need something to deal with our life on the web for us and what I last time called the artificial companion may be a way to do that it may be a way of expressing and controlling our identity on the web it's shielding our identity identity shielding is something I'll want to talk about both from the state and from corporations for distributing our information and being anonymous when we want to. The second half of the talk will be something about that, a companion is something that in some degree could manage our web life, and of course safeguarding that information after death, a a topic that's become livelier as time has gone on. Um, Berners-Lee, you probably all know this, in 1989 as a physicist working in Geneva produced the World Wide Web. It was carried by the internet, which was a US defense network that already existed and had existed for some 20 years. Um, I'm using the word serendipitous. Do you know serendipitous? One of my favorite words. It means salon, technically, if you look it up in the dictionary. But serendipitous has come to mean um, something turning out not quite the way you expect, finding out something not in the way you intended, something working for something you didn't expect it to, like in the famous example of post-it notes. Post-it notes were designed as a glue, if you remember, but they were a bad glue and sand turned out to be a very good thing for just sticking things on your fridge. So post-it notes are the key example of serendipity. And, and Berners-Lee created the World Wide Web almost by serendipity because he was after something else. And I'll talk about what I think that is. Um, he only intended it as a tool for his colleagues. The World Wide Web, when he did it in, in Geneva, was intended as a way of giving physicists access to lots of physics documents. Not a thing we want. What he didn't know at the time, of course, and was as shocked as the rest of us, was that it turned out to be an entity that revolutionised the world as a whole. Um, a majority of the world's population are now on it. That's an extraordinary thought after only 30 years, isn't it? Uh, don't forget that before the World Wide Web, there was something not that different from it. People tend to think it came out of the blue, which it did, as something... Completely different. Well, yes, it was different in the sense there were documents on it you could see everywhere and there were clever interfaces other people made. But there were things before on the internet. There was a thing called Usenet. Um, I don't think you probably want the technical computer detail, but computer people knew before the World Wide Web that they could exchange documents. In 1970, I got a book size file from Marvin Minsky at MIT. Uh, He sent his book around to lots and lots of his friends and colleagues to read before he published it. In 1970, long before the the World Wide Web. You could send books out, you could could leave your diaries there for people to read if that's what you wanted to do. A lot of it was for assignations and making dates just like the web. Uh, There were extraordinary user groups, they were called, with names like alt.sex.com. You can imagine that was for meeting up for people of various sorts. Um, Again, like the World Wide Web, it had no central servers. It it had what was called peer-to-peer information transfer, which is what we now have and runs in the night with your music. Um, The Usenet was there. Like everything in the world, nothing's as radical a change as you might imagine. Even the World Wide Web had something before it that was a bit like it. The trouble was it was owned entirely by those attached to US defense organisations and laboratories, as I was at the time at Stanford, so I got access to Usenet. Most ordinary people didn't, just as most ordinary people didn't initially get, used to, uh, get use of email or indeed of the World Wide Web. It's the World Wide Web that's become, with the internet, the great democratising force that's gone out to the whole population. Here's Berners-Lee's own words. Looking back later, in 1989, while I was working at the European Particle Physics Laboratory, I proposed that a global hypertext space be created. Hypertexts are the links you click and they go to other documents, which any network-accessible information could be referred to by a single document identifier. That became a, free fra- a key phrase, UDI. Um, then it was uh, URI, okay, and now it's URL. It's the same kind of idea. An, an entity, the URL is to remember is the is the label you use to find a document which starts http in 1990 i read a program called World Wide web a point and click hypertext editor which ran on the next machine an apple machine this together with the first web server i released the high energy physics community okay so he he wanted a system of documents that could be read anywhere that's what the World Wide web was it had lots of features for physicists that needn't concern us it, when it became a worldwide resource. Um, It was not owned by computer scientists, interestingly, which the internet had been. It was owned by the physics community. And it turned, of course, into a sex wave. But that can't have surprised anybody who knew the history of the Minitel in France. Uh, France, you may remember, pioneered a system of looking up uh, to your telephone numbers on a tiny screen that they gave to you to put in your house called Minitel. It was ahead of uh, developments in Britain. um, And it immediately turned into a... A, a sex organization if you remember ever going to paris in the 80s you'll remember that the metro the metro cars in the underground were strewn with um, adverts everywhere with minitel numbers on so you could meet people that always happens to all technical explosions that's to be no surprise now the semantic web that's what he really wanted and what he meant by the semantic web was not just a set of documents that could be seen anywhere by anybody and read an aid to physics research but and this is an article he wrote later with colleagues in the scientific american 2001 it was a, a vision and i could produce documents and won't try and prove it to you uh, uh, i'll show you something in a moment this is what he originally wanted he didn't just want to make documents accessible to physicists he wanted a web that in some sense documents understood what was in them whatever that may mean and we haven't refine that term yet. It will become clearer as we go on, I hope. as a, an, an internet that was as readable by the com- computers and computer agents as it is by us. I say, unlike the television which doesn't know what's on it. Okay, um, There's a bit of philosophy there with Braithwaite. We won't stop with that. Um, this last is what semantic web people meant, that interpretation could be given by the web itself the symbols on it what does that mean in concrete terms well for example it meant that it could answer very crudest it meant that you could ask the web questions about what was on it if you just had a web of documents like you originally designed in the World Wide web you couldn't ask it any questions if you had a web where the web understood the content of documents you could ask it questions so there's a technical subject called question answering in my own field which is language processing and artificial intelligence and in some sense this notion of automatic question answering, that you can ask a computer, or in this case, the whole web, a question, which you now can, of course. In Google, as you know, you can ask a question, and if you're lucky, you'll get an answer. Okay? That is, in a sense, a proof of the coming of the semantic web over and above the World Wide Web. That it knows enough about its own content to tell you an answer. You can type into Google, why is the sky blue? Which is, you know, there's no satisfactory answers to that, but there's pretty good ones, and Google will tell you. And why does it do that? It may do that simply because it goes and finds a document. In the old days, Google would have gone and found a document that told you about why the sky is blue. Now, Google will attempt to answer the question. Also, an important thing that must be said is this. The form in which the semantic web is really with us are what are called ontologies, um, gigantic structures of class membership and associations of activities of classes of things and entities and diseases that are the basis of all the information we have in medicine and science, all of which has gone onto the web in gigantic structures, not as documents, of course, all the medical and scientific documents are on the web, but there are also things called medical ontologies that, say, physicians and researchers can go to and see the relationships between diseases, cures and that. Without that, medical research couldn't continue. And those ontologies... It's an old-fashioned Greek notion of classes where you have bird and then underneath you have robin, blackbird, stork. Um, these ontologies and complex structures on the web are, in my view, the semantic web coming into being. Oh, here's his own later view of his creation. This is, this is Berners-Lee again. He says, um, the web... I'm doing the underline bit. The web of human-readable document... Oh, there should be a plural there. The web of human-readable documents is being merged with a web of machine-understandable data. That is the key to me that shows what his original vision was, that machine-readable documents could be read by people and could also be read by the web itself and could merge it with data which gave meaning to what was in the documents and which the web itself could understand. This document, this sorry, this diagram appears in all papers about the semantic web, and it's a sort of like a sort of uh, Egyptian sort of um, symbol, a mandala, or that's an Asiatic thing I know. But this this diagram is meant to give some sense of what semantic web theorists wanted. Let me try and explain it for a second. It's a it's a step up hierarchy of more and more abstract and complex categorizations or ideas or generalizations of ideas at the very bottom you've got things like URI that's the universal resource indicator the thing that simply points at a document on the web and Unicode which is simply the system by which any computer system understands what are the actual characters in it it can tell Greek characters from Latin ones above that there are what's called XML which is a annotation language It's the basic annotation language. Now, what does that mean? Annotation is an idea that came out of the humanities. Scholars annotated ancient manuscripts with their meaning and comments. That idea has been wholly taken over by computing and has now become a basic idea underlying the structure of the web. It means that you can put comments into a text that the human may or may not be able to read, which the computer can read, And it tells it what that piece of the document means. It's a very interesting infusion of humanity's culture into computer science. So, for example, to the very simplest, you could take something like Winston Churchill and you could put brackets around it and put a little label at the end saying proper name, which would tell any computer that read that document that Winston Churchill was a proper name and so on. You could put in there human. You could put in there politician. You could put in little labels that would tell the computer, which are not part of the document for the human to read, but allow the computer to understand what the shape or class membership or meaning of the words in it are. And that whole idea can be generalized up to extraordinary levels. And then up and up it goes. Um, that goes up to ontology, which are um, uh, the class memberships of things, and then to rules rules, which could be rules governing the production of documents or the analysis of documents, giving syntax analysis of documents, up into the logic, which explains the, uh, the logic and the reasoning in a document, up to much harder things like proof. Is, is the document, does it prove something correctly? Is it true? To go back to a subject that preoccupies our newspapers and fake news, is the document true and does it prove its case? And above all at the top, should you trust it? So Back in 2001, when they came up with this diagram, Berners-Lee and his colleagues, they were feeling for some hierarchy of ways going up from the bottom to the top in which they wanted to put content into documents so that machines could be able to understand these complex concepts and manipulate them in the, with documents, not just documents, but also pictures. Okay. Um, I don't always think I've said that. Um, the bottom level of the semantic web always sit on what i just said something of this. Um, NLP is natural language processing. It's this uh, technology which I myself am, have been part of in my life for annotating objects and actions. Um, classic, there's a technology called information extraction, which has been which is more or less the same age as the web, and which is a shallow technique which goes through documents and pulls out facts, and that's really what a lot of the annotation of the semantic web is. It's, say, um, classic information extraction, which is sold now for very large sums of money, will be a document that went through a company's reports on the day they were issued and pulled out all the pieces in the company's report that showed that somebody had been fired or somebody had been hired or that um, the, stock, the days on which the stock price had risen. Okay, the pieces of fact that you need. That's part of annotation and getting meaning out of documents so the computer can get at it. Okay, so the, the semantic web, as I've described it, is in some sense the worldwide web of, the, of text plus meanings. Um, this links into all kinds of background, much of which you will not be interested in in artificial intelligence and philosophy, but let me just take a moment and try and plug it in. Um, in artificial intelligence, the, the subject that tries to get machines to be as much like us as possible and do the things we can do, one of the oldest struggles has been whether artificial intelligence should be based on logic and proof and the representation of meaning. There's a, an acronym there, GOFI, which means good old-fashioned AI. And good old fashioned AI has been the doctrine, the classic doctrine in AI that yes, we shall only have artificial intelligence if it can model meaning and proof and logic in the way that the best of our thinking is. Um, There's been strong resistance to this in other parts of the field, partly because there's lots of evidence that people don't work with logic and we don't reason and we're driven much by emotion and by association, but also because the kinds of artificial intelligence work that worked with logic rules didn't tend to produce payoff and products as much as the kind of AI that worked with statistics and associations and very large quantities of data. And if you know what machine learning is, and I touched on it last time, you'll know that machine learning is now the dominant theme in artificial intelligence, and that tends to be based entirely on statistical processes and reject uh, logic as the foundation of intelligence. So the semantic web was in some sense taking sides on the logic and reasoning side of that debate. It was on the good old-fashioned AI sides. Um, It's also, and I've said this already, the semantic web had built into it what I'm calling there the apotheosis of annotation. It was the high point of this this trend extracted from the humanities of having humans, or preferably machines, annotate texts so as to tell you what was in them. And it was also, and this, again, was very close to Berners-Lee's own view, it was, the semantic web was bringing together these documents with trusted databases, so the databases and what was in them, actual data, abstract data, so just statist- data you could use for statistics, medical data, could be used as grounding the meanings of terms. But, of course, alas, databases just consist of symbols too. If you want terms grounded in something... For what words and terms grounded in something other than symbols, where can you go? It's a problem. You can't break out of the web. You can't break out of the computers. They don't always have hands that reach out and touch things and say glass. So how the heck do they know what a glass is? Well, they have photos of it. They do a lot of work with pictures. We maybe come to that later. Okay. so... I'm sorry, I'm drifting off into a philosophical corner now that may or may not interest some of you, but it may some. Um, one of the most famous American philosophers who only died recently was called Hilary Putnam. And Putnam was much exercised all his life by this problem of what do things mean and how do we know? And he, he came to the view that only scientists really know what words mean. I think this is an insane view. I mean, I take the opposite view that I'm a Democrat, um, what words mean or what we say they mean. Uh, Scientists can say what they like in their corners, they can't control it. But look at Putnam's argument, it's very clever. Um, Aluminium and molybdenum, oops, I can't say that, molybdenum are two metals that look exactly alike. You can't tell by looking at them which is which, okay? So people can't tell them apart. You give somebody a piece of molybdenum and a piece of aluminium and they can't tell them apart. But scientists can, because of course they have special tests, tests in the laboratory that tell them. So says Putnam. Only scientists really know what aluminium means. We don't know. We can't tell it from molybdenum. We don't know what aluminium means. Scientists do. Okay. So this is an interesting point of view, isn't it? Have you thought about it? That only scientists really know what technical words mean. We think we do, but we don't. We call this an aluminium saucepan, but it might be a molybdenum saucepan. It wouldn't be because it would be much too expensive, but that's another point. Okay. So he had another view, which is that... um, since meanings change in the hands of ordinary people like us, these criteria by which the scientists know what's aluminium and what's molybdenum shouldn't leak out. Because if they leak out into the population, we'll begin to change the meanings. And then science isn't secure. So it's a wonderfully, Putnam's is a wonderfully elitist view of science, that scientists are the guardians of meaning. They control meaning, and we shouldn't get too much of it because we might let it drift. Um, there's another philosopher, a British philosopher called Hugh Mellor, who fought against this heavily. Uh, he, he took the term heavy water. You probably know what heavy water is. It appears in all those wartime movies where a plucky little band of commandos go off to Norway and blow up Hitler's heavy water plant. Do you remember? Well, heavy water was some of the stuff that you... It's not water. It's, a, it's, an, alo, it's an allotope of water which has different atoms in but it looks just like water. You could drink a glass of it and nothing would change, okay? But you can't make atomic bombs with ordinary water. You can make them with heavy water. And um, Hugh Mellis argued that uh, Cambridge argued we call heavy water water because it is water. It's just slightly different water, okay? He doesn't. He's resisting the Putnam view that heavy water is something completely different because only scientists can tell them apart. Mello's view is it's called heavy water for a very good reason, because it is water. The difference is trivial compared with the sameness of meaning. He doesn't like the idea that scientists are guardians and control such meanings. So on that view then, my view, the anti-Putnam view, you can't lock away meanings and keep them safe and leave them in the hands of scientists. If you know the name Wittgenstein, a name I dropped in the last lecture, Wittgenstein's view was very much that meaning was use, meaning was what we, the users, said it meant, and that there couldn't be experts who told us what meanings meant if we didn't agree. Karen Mark jones she was a colleague of mine, maybe I may not have heard of her, professor at Cambridge. I mention her because she, she came into this argument strongly. She died a few years ago. She's rather famous, more famous in death than in life, because she invented the algorithm which underlies much of the search on the web the Google search that you do um, she was in what she was in the part of artificial intelligence which is now called which has always been called information retrieval at Cambridge and she invented this criterion for search which has become very important but she got into this debate she was very interested in this debate and she critiqued the semantic web she didn't like the idea of the semantic web very much okay um, she thought it was a bit too elitist she so she there's her article of 2004 what's new about the semantic web she said Words don't stand for things, and you can't explain words satisfactorily, she said. Words stand for themselves. Words just stand for themselves, and you can't write down the content of words satisfactorily in another way or in a logical language, which is what AI people somehow think you can do. They think you can write meaning into a logical language, pop it into a computer, then the computer understands. She said, no, no, it isn't quite like that. Um, Words stand for themselves, and we have to do calculations over masses of words as they are um the trouble with that view is i mean it's a very powerful view and indeed in some sense her view has won out because her view is the kind of view consistent with what's called machine learning which doesn't worry much about logic or defining meaning it just takes words as a huge bag in text computes over them and finds things and it works but it doesn't sound somehow very satisfactory because in the back of our minds we have this idea, wait a minute, if I want to know what a word means, I go to a dictionary, I look it up, and it tells me. I look up serendipity, and there's several more words, and it tells me what serendipity means. And I come away thinking, yes, now I know. Well, you see, on Karen Spock-Jones' view, that isn't, that's hard to explain because words just stand for themselves. But if you don't know what they mean... It's not much good them standing themselves. Here was one of her examples. This was her example. She was very keen on antiques. Uh, why you can't recode content? She put, took this out of an auction catalog: a Charles II parcel gilt cagework cup, circa 1670. What she said could be recoded there. What could you write down in that definition of that antique in a logical language? You could write object type cup, but that's all you could do. The rest is all in the English. And yet, as I say, that doesn't square. There's a paradox here with the fact that dictions explain meaning. That doesn't make logicians happy at all. Um, I don't think we want that. Um, so that's why I said earlier that the semantic web is in some sense a huge philosophical experiment. It seems to work. And yet, since we don't quite know how its terms mean anything, other than they lead back to other terms, to other terms, to other terms, and lead back to numbers in the computer, they don't ever really get out of the computer except of course they're attached to images one answer to the things in the web meaning things is that things attached to images you've got lots of pictures of tigers on the web with underneath it says tiger so you could say well that that's okay but it only means tiger because we can see that's a tiger okay how does the computer know it's a tiger I don't know if I just last time I described a famous I didn't Um, the famous experiment they did on trying to separate with machine learning, separating wolves from dogs. Most people can't tell wolves from dogs. Well, you can if you keep them. You soon find out. But if you have pictures, you can't always tell wolves from dogs. And they, they, gave, the, um, they gave the computer hundreds of pictures of dogs marked dog and wolves marked wolf. And they said, can you separate them? And it, it, the computer ran over them for a while. And then they gave it some new pictures. And my goodness, it, said, it could spot the wolves. But then they thought, found out there was something wrong with this because... If they gave it a picture of a wolf that wasn't on snow, it couldn't spot it. In other words, what the machine learning algorithm had done, it had learnt that there's always white snow in pictures where it says wolf. So all it did was learn where there was white snow. So if you gave it a wolf in a pleasantly furnished cage, (laughs) forgot it. So that's the trouble with machine learning. You can't be sure what it's learning about. It may not be learning about the bits of wolves you want. It may be just looking at the background and getting it completely wrong. And that's the problem of grounding meaning. That's why if you turn an algorithm like machine learning of the kind that Karen Spark-Jones liked loose on the meaning of wolf, it may get it wrong for crazy reasons. And that's why we feel one feels insecure about this notion. There's another couple of famous philosophers to drop, and I'll stop dropping philosophers after this. Quine was probably, he's dead, the most famous of all American philosophers of the century, possibly in, in the English-speaking world. And Quine, like Wittgenstein before him, took this view that we shouldn't think about meaning as attaching to single things, bottle glass, table. We should think of meaning as gigantic systems of interlinked words and their meanings, all of which attach the world as a whole, So in a sense, our whole culture is a world of interlinked meanings which attaches to the world as a whole, and it works. But we shouldn't be too fussy about whether wolf attaches to that particular wolf or not. We might get it wrong any time. We might have mislearned what wolf means. And this, I think, is a very important insight. Neither Quine nor Wittgenstein survived to see the World Wide Web, but that it captures how the semantic web works. It's hard to understand how those zillions quadrillions of symbols in it mean but they mean as a whole the web as a whole functions attached to the world as a whole it answers our questions it finds things for us and answering questions I think becomes crucial if if you can answer questions accurately then as with a human being who can answer questions we become persuaded they understand what we mean we aren't persuaded the web understands meaning just because it can put the times up in the morning Okay, I talked last time about companions, this project I ran years ago, and I talked in the last lecture about what they were. I'm not going to go through that again, but I'm going to bring a companions in here because I'm going to say that since the whole of your your whole of your life is going into the web whether you like it or not, unless you deliberately hold yourself back, as some of, my, some of my colleagues do, they don't want any of their life out there, they don't want mobile phones, they don't want laptops, they don't want anything like that, really. They'd rather go on with letters and phone calls. This is a perfectly legitimate choice, but they will be dying out, and more and more of us will have more and more of our life on the web, and the question is how we can control it. Um, there have been lots of projects for finding out in psychology called Memories for Life and is 28 terabytes enough to, whatever that means, to store everything you'll ever see, everything you'll ever say, every moment of your life put into the web, and it's not just that you want it out there so you can run your life on the web and run your affairs. You know as well as I do. It's because companies want to get at it. They're giving you that space for free because they want to get at it. Okay? And you know how vulnerable this is making you feel. You leave your laptop in the taxi. <gasps> Gosh, where did my life go? Well, if you'd done what they advised, you will have put your life in the cloud, and you can get it back onto another laptop. If you didn't, then your life's gone, and you're in a terrible state. And how can you control all that material? And I want to argue that the companion comes back in here because I think in the future something like the artificial companion will be not just our autobiographer, as I said last time, but it will be our agent and our organiser for handling the meaning of our life on the web because that's going to get harder. It's going to get harder because there's going to be more and more of it. And frankly, people aren't all that good managing the web. They can look up sex and holidays and money and mortgages, but... They don't use the editing facilities the web gives them. Um, they don't make use of a fraction of it. They can't. They don't really understand. To be honest, I'm sorry, Most 90, 95% of people can't use the web as a filter to really get what they want. They just look at the things on the first page that Google gives back. They never go beyond that. And this is very strange because it means the efficiency of web search is tiny. So, if, But if you were to have this companion, which we'll talk about now for the rest of my minutes um, as your web agent uh, how could it help you manage your life on the web or would you trust it would you be sure it's really yours would you be sure the company that sold it to you didn't really own it or, or the government doesn't really own it as it does in some countries whose names we won't mention um, of course this will affect your memory processes once your life is outsourced onto the web as you know children don't need to mm, they tell me they tell me. I don't either. I never did. Children don't remember phone numbers anymore. Why should they? They're on their phone. Why bother? Some people can still remember the phone numbers from their childhood. Uh, some people, Most people now can't. They don't even know their own phone number. Um, They don't need to. It's in there, isn't it? Um, How will you remember anything? Do you remember Geoffrey Bernard? He was the the spectator's life correspondent. This is an ad he put into the spectator years ago. Geoffrey Bernard's thinking of writing his autobiography. If anyone can tell him what he was doing between 1960 (laughs) and 1985, will they please write to him? (laughs) That was a joke, but it's becoming serious. Incompetence. As I said, people aren't good at search. They can't use the filters that are there. Um, The companion could be a better web interface. Um, As I say, the web is going to get harder to manage, not easier, and we're going to need help. Um, In the old days, 10, 20 years ago, you used to say, oh, well, IT people." company directors used to say, well, I have IT people to help me if I need them. Tony Blair was proud of never having sent an email. If he'd wanted one, he'd have brought in an IT person. But there aren't going to be IT people. That's the point. Um, It's going to be you and the web. Um, there ain't going to be anybody else um, and how are you going to do it well the help is going to come from the web one of the cliches I put out last time was that artificial intelligence has created a great number of problems it's going to have to solve them it's also going to have with companions it's going to have to solve the problem of helping you manage the web um, that it created for you so th- the I'm not recapping, but just reminding you of last time. The companion is the artificial thing that will live you with you. It could take any form. It could be a furry toy. It could be your phone. It'll know all about you and what you need. And it has to be yours uh, not the state's. Um, it'll have to know who to discuss what with and, and with whom. Uh, last time I talked briefly about the Victorian ladies' companion and that the key feature of the ladies' companion in the 19th century was discretion. And discretion is a word that's <laughs> going to come back. Discretion is going to be crucial to what your companion uh, will know and not know, and who it'll talk to about you. Um, oh, it's not just the, you're going. You and I are going to have problems. Remember, the state is going to have problems with its memory. This is a nice point I pulled out a long time ago, but it's, it still makes the point nicely on some the failing memory, the fading memory of the state. This worries people in government very much, okay? Imagine losing all your text records, your high school, college yearbooks, etc., etc. Now think of that for the federal agencies in Washington, Whitehall if you prefer, losing terabytes of information, much of which must be preserved by law. Central governments are terrified that they're going to lose their memories too. How are they ensuring that their memory is intact? Well, they're trying, but if you know that the history of government in this country with things like tax systems and uh, air traffic control systems, I wouldn't hold your breath. I mean, the whole of st- the state's memory could disappear as well, and they're very worried about that because it isn't all on bits of paper now, I'm afraid, like it used to be. Um, ditto your life and keeping that intact. Um, co, as I said, the companion will be a new kind of agent to help deal with the web, which is fundamentally passive. The semantic web, like the World Wide Web, it's a passive thing. It doesn't come at you. You have to ask it things and ask it to do things. You need an agent to deal with it. Um, The the web for you has got to, in a sense, become more personal than it is now. Well, we know shreds of this in the news. We don't like all of them. We know now it's possible only to see the news you want. It's said, very bad, said to be very bad for us, Only to see news we want because it confirms us in all our prejudices, and that's of course the way it's going. Um, on, let's go. Ah, this is how simple companions look at the moment. This has moved on a great deal since I drew. I sorry, I didn't draw. Um, the lady in the front row drew that logo. Um, that logo was drawn years ago, and we didn't have real companions then, just primitive ones in research laboratories. Nowadays, there are companions coming into being, and lots and lots of the world's population are buying them. Here they are, they look like Alexa, they look like Siri. They come from people like Apple and Amazon. Um, Alexa's like this. If you don't have Alexa, you probably don't know it's a thing like that in your house that's always on, you can shout at. It's not really a companion, but it's a first step. It answers your questions. It could change the TV channel for you. It could, they say in the near future, it will make a restaurant booking for you. Which country are you going to? France. And then that's what it tells you. I mean, you can see how, in some sense, um, how unhelpful such things can be from that last response. Um, It's really a question-answer, right? It's what I said at the beginning, that this is why I think the two parts of this talk are coupled. Um, the, The semantic web, the web that understands itself, is also the web the proof of it, it can understand itself so, is it answers your questions, but look how stupid answering questions can be. You just want help and that's what you get. I mean, it's, it's appropriateness. With the word discretion up there is important, but appropriateness. What we're finding it hard to get to in artificial intelligence is things that give you appropriate demonstrations that they understand. OK, we don't know how they're doing things in Google and Amazon because they don't tell us. Our students go off and work for them, but then they won't tell us anymore what they're up to, quite rightly. But much of those, much of the content of Alexa and Siri are hand-coded. They've simply been written in by human beings. They're trying to use machine learning to learn from all the pre- previous conversations they're having how to continue future conversations but it's not clear yet how much that's paying off it probably is it's quite hard to make that happen but the vast bulk of what's been done has been done by uh, smart young people sitting at desks writing things down I mean they say famously with Siri used to be able to You probably still can try it when you get home you can say to Siri where can I bury a body and then it gives you a witty answer that shows it was ready for that one and you know doesn't want to get into legal difficulties but it wants to show you it knows it's a dicey question um Remember how slow artificial intelligence is, and not how fast. Um, Alexa, isn't that different from Parry? In the last lecture, I showed Parry, the, the paranoid, um, the paranoid conversationist at Stanford fifty years ago, who was the most intelligent conversationist of his age, possibly any age. He was working. Parry was functioning in Stanford in the early 1970s. His responses were at least as smart as Alexa's, and that's fifty years ago. So don't run away with the idea that AI is moving at lightning speed. It, it is moving pretty fast in some places, but in others, it's moving amazingly slowly. Now I've got old, I can see just how slowly it's moving because some of the things I remember when I was young don't look so bad now, okay? Um, okay, also, let's move on to some of the, the last minutes, some of the more, um, not sinister, shall we say, but the, the things we should be wary of. Remember, Alexa's always listening. She's storing your data, and she's always listening. Um, a major hotel chain in the States is going to give up concierges and install Alexa in every room. Um, this is nice. Um, it'll, you know, uh, get you to room service. It'll bring you cups of coffee. But she's transfer. But I'm, I wonder about this. She'll be transferring everything she listens to when you don't remember that she's switched on. Okay, when you're there with your lover and you've forgotten that Alexa's switched on. Who knows who she's transferring that to or what her level of discretion is. She's certainly transferring it back to the makers because they say they need it for advertising and for uh, improvement purposes, training purposes. Who else is she transferring it to? We don't know. But, of course, those of you who've read Orwell know that this is teetering. We're teetering right on the edge of the 1984 scenario where Big Brother has something installed in every house and knows everything you're saying except when you're in the loo, OK? That was the only place you could get away, um, if you remember it. And that that novel's from 1948, so it shows we've been here for a while. In a decade or two, there'll be as many Alexas as people, so there's no doubt there's going to be plenty of detail. And remember, she's not exactly a companion in the sense in which I defined it. She doesn't really know about you or care about you at all. She does answer questions. um, The things aren't connected. She does one thing, then she goes to another. I was thinking, when I described it to you earlier in the last time, of a companion of something with a much more continuous view of your life, um, knowing what you want, knowing the kinds of things you like, knowing the kinds of life problems you have at that stage in your life, knowing when you get old that you're going to need a power of attorney, and so on. Crucial role discretion, I've said this already, um, what should be said by a companion to anybody else. Uh, Show no postings by Bobby to Helen. You could already imagine having this on Facebook. There's going to be a great deal of need for this on our 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 computer companions, just as Victorians had for their human companions. Um, Will they gossip to other people's companions? They probably will, and you'll probably want that. If you were someone in an old person's home, and you were too shy to ask somebody else out to lunch in the old person's home, you might be quite happy if your companion would talk to her companion and fix up a date. I mean, there will be perfectly good and positive reasons for your companion chatting to other companions behind your back. Again, it will be discretion. It will be appropriateness. Um, it's about crime. I mean, do you, do, you want to, do you want it to be discreet and never reveal to your children about your life in Rome, which may have been criminal? The government, of course, will want access to companions after your death. The question is whether they'll be allowed to have them. This will be very interesting. Um, there'll be the question of companions and wills. You remember in the old days, authors, uh, the day after he died, Hardy's wife, Thomas Hardy's wife, was burning all his letters in the garden, if you remember. you um, remember? Uh, I'm sure there are lots of people still like this who want everything burnt after their death. With a companion, this will have very strong form. I mean, do you want to leave in your will that your partner should dash out and delete all your pornography on the day after your death? I don't know. I don't know. It's, we don't know where it's going to go. We just need to think about these things. Um, there's a paradox in countries like ours. Um, uh, We have very strong constraints on our use of people's information, but the state has no constraints on its use of our information. No matter what they tell you, they're lying. Um, In both Britain and America, the state has access to virtually all your phone calls and virtually all your messages if it chooses. There are virtually no constraints in law, no matter what they say. You aren't allowed to put up your cricket team... or Sorry, to keep your cricket team on your computer and their home addresses without permission. If you're a professor, you aren't allowed to put students' marks up on a wall without their permission. But the state is entitled to ransack your files at will. Um, this is very, and as somebody said in America recently, there's transparency for them, but there's none for us. This is very important. So down the road, we're gonna have to tackle this. We're not able to tackle at the moment because the state frightens us every time by saying, don't talk like that, we're protecting you from terrorism. Good heaven's sake. There were, weren't there three deaths last year from terrorism? You need protecting. There were three deaths, 65 million people. For heaven's sake. Shut up. Um, But this won't go on. This won't go on. I don't believe we'll go on taking it. I think we will want to know. Um, So, what will it mean to shield our identity? This is the last sort of topic here, take the last few minutes. Um, If your companion's an internet agent, could it also shield your identity and protect and negotiate your identity? Could I see one of the key roles of your internet companion as negotiating how much of your identity it reveals at any given moment. Um, one of the great safeguards we have here, unlike the continent, I saw somebody in The Guardian yesterday who got thoroughly wrapped over the, over the knuckles for saying how they do things on the continent. We're not supposed to say that anymore. On the other hand, it's true. One of the great differences between us and the continent is that we have no, at least in England, we have no um, clear doctrine of legal names. Uh, you can effectively call yourself what you like. And in America, you can't call yourself what you like in France, you'll get a very strong fine. You can call yourself 50 different things, and you can have, in principle, if you can get hold of them, 50 different post office savings accounts in different names. There's nothing illegal about it as long as you don't commit fraud. There was a case establishing this some years ago. This is very important. It means you can call yourself something different every time you use the web. If you can get away with it, and if it's useful, I'm not advocating it. Um, back in the old days of hippiedom in America Abbie Hoffman used to say every time they ask your social security number give them a different one Um, that uh, (laughs) Um, of course that didn't help to build up a pension but it, it was one way of dealing with the state why do you have to identify yourself when you license your car they know who you are why do you have to tell them again why do you have to tell them your name and phone number every time you want to park or do anything it's extraordinary why do we Tell people these... Why do they ask these things all the time? Could we set things up so that they didn't and and we're encouraged not to? Um, There is a crime and and security problem. We know that. Um, I don't believe that these necessarily uh, require the public support for the level of intrusion we currently have. Um, This is a very difficult question. Um, But there will be a growing market for identity protection. There will be a growing market for companies which if you don't have your own companion, which is what I think we will get, there'll be al- elsewhere, there'll be companies that offer to protect you. Of course, there are things like Tor, the dark web, Bitcoin, uh, you know, networks for hiding paedophiles. We, we know all this. I mean, but nevertheless, there's going to be something serious behind all this, which is either individual or corporate protection. Um, um, Eric Birch had a wonderful thing, which I'm not sure I fully understood. He talked of a, a finger machine on the street He thought thought that identification could take the following form: somewhere there'd be a national database of citizens. There probably is. I don't know. I guess there's probably something like that, or it may be distributed over many ministries. And and Eric Eric Birch said you could have, in principle, a machine on the street where you stuck your finger in the machine, and it printed out a ticket and said yes. And you'd hold and show that to somebody and say, look, look, yep, I live here. Yes, it just says yes. Okay. I mean, it's not a totally original idea. If you remember the, uh, the very old surrealist film Alpha Ville, back in the 1930s, was it? Or I think Alpha Ville. Alpha Ville in Paris had a machine which said, insert one franc. And you put one franc in, and out came a ticket which said, merci. And I mean, <laughs> Eric Birch's imagination is something along the same lines, but something like that, something where you could prove you were somebody, but it doesn't have to say, it says that you are. It doesn't have to say who you are. I mean, you could take this anywhere you'd like. I mean, if you'd like literary associations, this kind of thing. I mean, you know, The Return of Martin Guerre. Do you all remember The Return of Martin Guerre? Alain Depardieu, I think, in the original. um, The man comes back from the wars. He isn't the man he says he is, but his wife pretends not to notice because she's glad to have somebody back from the wars. Okay? So the whole film rests on the idea that he isn't really Martin Guerre, but she decides not to care because somebody's come back and Martin Gare's almost certainly dead. In other words, she doesn't care who he is, she knows who he isn't. And we've had a lot of this in these recent exciting and slightly um, uh, provocative stories about um, uh, people who've been sleeping with police spies in, uh, in um, various kinds of ecological organisations the government's interested in, fi- in infiltrating. And, but there have been court cases, or are threatened with court cases, where people are saying, um, I wouldn't have slept with him if I'd known he was a policeman. And this is an extraordinary claim I mean, because it means I wouldn't have slept with him if I'd known who he was. Um, I'm not trying to take a legal point of view on this, of which I don't have any strong points of view. But there's a very strange idea that somehow you can't have a relationship with somebody if you don't know who they are. I think there's nothing in law that says this. There are exceptional cases of impersonation and fraud, of course. But in general, it's not clear in law that you have a right to know what somebody's name is or that the name they're using is their real name. But people somehow deep down feel they do. Well, I'm not sure that's true. And Berners-Lee, who we started with, has made very strong points about this. He said that your name is becoming an increasing irrelevance on the web because the web can find out who you are even without your name because it knows so much about you it can find you without knowing who your name is. So the fact you have the freedom in our society to uh, use different names won't matter because your name will cease to be relevant. You'll be more and more like Martin Gare. I mean, it's that you are will become important, not who you are. Um, so I think it, we're moving into a world where you, you should be able to decide how much you reveal and to whom. Your companion might be the right attorney, uh, sorry, the right entity, the right attorney, excuse me, to do that for you. The companion of thoughts then will in some sense becomes your identifier, as your mobile phone now is your identifier. We all know that. The bank likes to know that your phone and you and your credit card are in the same place. Your phone has become your identifier. Um, There possibly should give incentives to companies to minimise their intrusive or aggressive demand for your identification. The government could actually set things up so there was incentive for ISPs to discourage over-identification by people. Um, Managing your life, I'll stop with this. This is the last couple of minutes. There's also the issue of managing your information after your death. This could be a separate lecture. I won't go on about it. There's a big industry out there now in managing your web life after you're gone. I don't know if you know this. You probably don't stray into these areas. They have rather tacky... Pictures like this, the virtual, this is quite old, the virtual memorial garden, here we are. Uh, They they, they promise to look after you. Facebook already now memorialises your site after you're gone. Your site stays on Facebook after you're gone. Friends can write tributes. You can no longer contribute to last, but it goes on. Um, You're being encouraged by the garden to prepare for your digital afterlife. There's lots of these are lovely pictures, I love these. Um, the safe and secure way to pass your online accounts on to your relatives and so on. There are final message sites that go on sending out birthday presents to your children for a fixed number of years, rather like medieval chantries who went on praying for you for a certain number of years after your death for a, certain, for a, a donation. This is very much the same idea. Here we are, love, letters from beyond. I don't know if you know about this underculture. I'm just telling you about it if you don't know. But it's all part of what I've been talking about. It's all part of um, the industry that's growing up to manage identity. This is just the particular bit that manages your identity after your death. Um, There are legacy issues, of course. How will they know you're dead? You won't be there to tell them some will have to tell them how does your spouse know who they are to tell them uh, there are little problems here and um, you don't want them encouraging suicides there are a lot of suicide sites which encourage suicide it's a bad idea the british library has a huge um uh, effort now in memorializing the lives of citizens an excellent idea they're doing it properly and nicely not in the kind of amateurish way that managing uh, these sites are managing your art. but still there are serious questions on what should happen to your information after you're dead. And these sites, in their various ways, are trying to do it. The conclusions I've said this Bernard Lee's uh, original vision was a semantic web that understood its own content. It's coming into being as structured text and data. There's already a commercial form of it called the Google Knowledge Graph, which you can look at, which use, is used by lots of question answering systems. It is essentially Google's version of the semantic web. It's a huge philosophical exercise to say, to try and ground meaning to. to to support a system where it's not quite clear how it knows what anything means, but somehow it does. And this is extraordinary fact that the artificial companion, as I've described it, could be an interface to our whole life information on the web, to distribute our information, to control our anonymity, to license our identity in a way, and to know who we've told what about a bit like the discreet Victorian companion, to shield our identity from the state and corporations. I think we're going to need a lot more of that, possibly if you care, to safeguard your information after death. Well, there you are. It's a nice one going on. Thank you. Thank you